Well, good morning again. Thanks for the good morning back. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. We're going to continue on in week three of our For the Love series. We are pretty much the whole fall in the gospel account of John, the book of John. Uh, We're doing this sermon series alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic Church. Would you stand to your feet with me to honor God's word? We're going to read the last nine verses of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting with verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Rabbi means teacher. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Forbid that anyone here would continue to try to figure out how to piece together our lives instead of entering in the life that you've prepared for us. Help us to die to ourselves today and be found in you, to to rest in you, Jesus, to live by the power of your Holy Spirit in new life with new power, resting in your purpose that you have for our lives and loving you back, honoring you and joining joining you on the the, the adventure of making disciples, of discipleship. And worrying about nothing else. Amen. As I teach through our passage today from John 1, I have four points. Jesus finds, Jesus sees, Jesus saves, and Jesus sends. Now, from the beginning to the end, the Bible is a story about Jesus. 
And in the Bible, of the 40 writers that contribute to what we know as the Bible, contributed to this work on three different continents, in two, maybe three different languages, spanning three different millennia, to contribute to a miraculously united work of 66 books. Of all these writers, I think no writer more explicitly, simply, and clearly lays down the truth that Jesus is the subject of the Bible. Just like Jesus is the subject of all of history. And Jesus is the protagonist of your life, just as he is Nathaniel's and Philip's. And so I think it's appropriate that Jesus, grammatically as well, is the subject of all four of our points here. Number one, Jesus finds. Verse 43, our first verse in our passage. Let's read that again. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, apparently, those two words were convincing enough to Philip for Philip to completely lay everything down in life that he knew it in. Everything, life as he knew it, laid it completely down and decided to follow Jesus. Those two words, follow me, had to be very convincing. He says, follow me, and we're not even told from this text that, that he said, yeah, okay, that's cool. We just know by context that a few verses later, he's walking with Jesus and doing Jesus', Jesus work in his life. Right? By verse 45, he's, he's out there trying to gather Nathaniel. Now, why, why would Philip just all of a sudden decide to follow Jesus like this? Why did Philip follow Jesus? With this question, I, I can only imagine like if Philip was like interviewed, kind of like a modern day interview, like... Hey, you know, tell me, why do you follow Jesus? If it were me, I can imagine me, if I were in Philip's shoes, trying to be overly introspective, you know, and like, like come up with this really good religious answer. Okay, well, I follow Jesus because he's everything, and he fulfills the purpose in my life, and the, the, the hole in my heart, and the longing for all hope, and I'd probably come up with these big, huge words, but... All those, they could be compelling and true, but not necessarily accurate. Why did Philip follow Jesus? It's really mysterious, more than our understanding, and it's way more simple than we might see. Philip followed Jesus because Jesus found Philip and told him to follow him. Philip followed Jesus because a voice of mysterious, sovereign authority said, follow me. And all of a sudden, Philip's following Jesus. We get to the next two verses later, verse 45. All of a sudden, Jesus, or Philip, by the power of Jesus, is going to his friend Nathaniel and saying, we have found the Messiah. This Jesus guy from Nazareth, he checks off all the boxes of the promised one that we've known about. Now, before we get to Nathaniel's skeptical, scoffing response, let's consider what our text says. In your Bible, in mine, likely it says that 
that Jesus found Philip. And then a few verses later, Philip says, we found Jesus. So technically, Philip is wrong, right? He didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. Now, I don't want to just make this point to, you know, to religiously bat around ideas and try to be a perfectionist about words or argue over precise theology. Uh, If you're the type of person who just loves to argue about theology and debate about that stuff, bless your heart. Uh, My days of doing that are long gone. The ship has sailed on that. But Jesus found Philip. And the reason that this isn't religious nitpicking is because, like we say in our Established 101 class, which is two weeks from today, right after our service, we are passionate about how God saves us. Now, if we don't immensely grasp God's role in our salvation, then we walk out the danger of being most religious people in history. That we find ourselves striving vainly, futilely, to try to play God's role in salvation instead of resting in Him and being free to play our role. We need to be able to say, God, you do you. And I'll praise you for it. And I'll rest in you. And I'll go on doing my job, being revived by you, loving you back, honoring you, listening to you and obeying, and walking only in the power you give me. See, it's not just nitpicking. It's everything. It's the difference between a life full of power and a lying life of religious deadness. Kind of the way I grew up. Philip didn't find Jesus. There is a, actually a really corny song from a decade or two ago. A uh, Christian song. I found Jesus. I don't know if it was honky like that, but it was super corny. Maybe a cute song. But no, we didn't find Jesus. And the reason why Jesus doesn't need to be found, listen, I came up with this all on my own. Jesus doesn't get lost. We're lost. In fact, Ephesians 2 says, when he finds us, he finds us dead in our sin and our transgression. We're lost. He's not. And that's where Jesus finds us. In fact, I'm not moving on from this point. I'm going to go deeper in this. The very start of verse 43, it says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And that's where our whole story blows up from this moment. Where Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now let's play a little game of why did the chicken cross the road. If you know me, I'm a dad joke kind of guy and sorry, not sorry. Uh, I'm not going to tell a joke here, but let's play, let's play a little game of why did Jesus go to Galilee? Real simple and yet extremely profound. Jesus went to Galilee because Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now that's probably not going to challenge your intellect, but if you allow it to apply the way the Bible applies it, it will challenge you to the core. Let me elaborate on this. Why did you end up in San Marcos? Why is it that you just so happen to be found sitting in church chairs 
while I'm talking to you right now? Why do you have the father you have? The mother you have? The hair you have? Or for some of y'all, why don't you have any hair anymore? Why do you have the body you have? These questions are a matter of life and death. And if you answer them wrong, you will destroy your soul and your body. Why? Because Jesus decided. Now let's take this question to even global things. Why is it that Jewish people, the Jewish people have suffered in all of history from the, from the, the hands of the, the Egyptians to the Philistines all the way to the Nazis? Why did colonialism happen? Why did our nation have the founding it did? The good stuff in our constitution, that's great. But even the ugly stuff that we kind of like try to fast forward through in history, like enslaving people and killing natives. Like, why? And why do we still have so many problems and so many flawed leaders? It's because Jesus decided Now, Jesus isn't responsible for our evil and our sin, but he will choose to allow things to play out and then use even flawed men and prideful people and lofty nations, use them as pawns in his redemptive plan. Just consider Pharaoh or Pontius Pilate. Jesus decides to use even broken pieces to make something beautiful. Why Why did an innocent, unarmed man get charged for a crime he didn't commit, get convicted under false pretense, and then suffer a death by crucifixion, a death that's supposed to be reserved for evil people like murderers and you and me? Why? careful here. It wasn't just because the Romans were brutal or because the Jews were jealous. It's because Jesus decided to go to the cross. Jesus decided to do whatever it takes to find you and me. And so world history, as well as your history, is what it is because Jesus decided. Jesus decided. And look, that's just where he's getting started because it's his history and it's his future. And everything he's done is a setup for the finality that he brings. It's just a prologue to his redemptive plan or it's just point one in my sermon, in other words. Jesus finds. Number two, Jesus sees. Jesus sees. Philip has just been found by Jesus, and so he goes to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's not the not the most gullible of guys. Like he's just wrestling with things on his own, right? He's he's probably been thinking, from what we know, he's probably been thinking about the coming of the Messiah and processing like this is how it's supposed to go. But listen, his life is stuck by his own expectations of how it's supposed to go. Again, let this apply. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been stuck on the way you thought God was supposed to move in your life? So stuck that he's doing something way bigger than you could have ever imagined, 
And God himself could be right in your midst and you could miss it because of your expectations. That's where Nathaniel was. You know, Messiah is supposed to be like this, this, and that. I, I understand this. Nathaniel is a, a type A mouth vomiter. He just tells it like it is, which means he tells it the way he thinks it is. Big difference. If you've ever been someone that says that, I tell it like it is. You do not tell it like it is. You tell it like you think it is. Just a little FYI. That's a little side note. That's free. Okay? Take it personally. Nathaniel says, that's not how it's supposed to go down. What good could come from there? He says something crazy prejudiced, if not outright racist, against the very city from which the very Son of God has come. It's like someone from Wimberley or something. Let's just go with this. Saying, what good could come from San Marcos? Isn't it just drunk kids and poor people from San Marcos? Now, don't get all up in your feelers if you're from Wimberley. God loves you just like he loves Nathaniel. And God works with those flaws. I love how Philip didn't respond like with a rebuttal. He didn't give him the 10 points of why Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. He didn't you know, passive-aggressively kind of post on Nathaniel's wall about the dangers of bias towards you know, um, Galilean Messiah candidates. He just said, verse 46, come and see. The grace here is amazing. Even someone as flawed and prejudiced as Nathaniel is given an invitation to come and see. Even as someone as flawed as you and me. Come and see. Come and see the one who truly sees. See this guy who is able to gather Roman tax collectors and Jewish zealots on the same team, and they're not even killing people. They're not even killing each other. See the one who is able to get white people and black people and brown people and cowboy fans (laughs) all together, gathered together for something way bigger than just church as we know it, as we're used to, but something that's driven by his spirit and promised by his word. Come and see this Jesus. And and Philip didn't react. The other thing, as we get so reactive, like we got to argue for for God because he needs that somehow. Philip didn't react to Nathaniel's prejudice and bias scoffing because Philip was confident that Jesus is self-authenticating. All he had to do, knowing who Jesus is, just be like, okay, well, you think that, but woo, I dare you. Come and see. He was confident enough that a dare was sufficient. And come and see who? Again, come and see the one who truly sees. Because all the things that, that you would argue about of why we will, will or will not follow God are just smoke screens until we get to that person that truly personally sees us. Nathaniel comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, man, there's that Israelite, no deceit in him. And I think he's still skeptical. He turns it up, like, defensive at this point. He's like, okay, I know a lot now. I'm going to prove this guy's a heretic. How do you know me? And Jesus tells him. He says, I actually saw you sitting. You were right here, and kind of under a fig tree. 
Jesus made him see that he sees. You know, Jesus is still doing this today. He's still helping you see, hey, look, I see, I see, I saw you when, when you had no other ally in your life, and I was the only one there for you, but I, I saw you. Jesus is saying, I, I saw you when you had the, the two bills out, and you couldn't pay either of them, and there was like light blue paint on the wall in the room that you were worried and crying out to me, and I saw you. He, I saw you when, when your friend who called himself a Christian said lies about you, and there was no one else there to defend you except me. I was there. I saw you. I saw you when, when you had to play the role of a parent because your parents just weren't well enough to, to carry the weight of that. Jesus is saying in specific ways, I see you. He is the Jesus, the God who sees. And look, our role especially once we've been seen by him and transformed by him and become his followers, his disciples. It's as simple as this. We don't need to understand all the mysteries of the world and and to be experts necessarily on the Bible before he uses us as disciples. Our mission is to compel others to come and see the one who sees Come and see the one who sees. Jesus sees. And I think we'll find that we have a lot less arguing to do for him when we can rest in how he sees us and we can operate in the Holy Spirit gifts that show powerfully through us that he sees others. This is what the spirit of, of, of the living God helps us to do to build others up. That they would be seen by God especially the gift of prophecy, which we're commanded to earnestly desire. We're earnestly desiring that we'd be instruments that show people that God sees them and loves them and wants to build them up. The gift of prophecy is still alive and well in the church today. And what Jesus is doing here is so much like every experience I've ever had with prophecy I've sometimes been uh, in a place where God will, will call a person out to give him a word, and I'm like, oh, don't embarrass him, because I see a bunch of ugly stuff in this dude. And the prophetic gift always calls out the, the joyous, the lovely things to, to come and swallow up the, other, the rest of those things. How many of y'all know Jesus saw the prejudice and ugly in Nathaniel? But Jesus saw more than that. God, give us eyes to see more than we see. He saw all those things, but he saw the redemptive qualities in Nathaniel that he would later use to turn the, the world upside down. And Jesus starts to affirm those qualities. He says, here's an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. He starts calling them out. And like water and light on a dead seed in the ground, Jesus prophetically generates faith in this flawed man. Church, we're called to do no less than this. Called to do no no less than this. Now, sometimes I think that we're afraid of seeing or being seen uh, and entering into a relationship with God and the church at a deeper level. 
Because of fear. Now, it could be fear like, man, I'm afraid that I'm going to see something in this person, like prejudice or something, that makes them incompatible for relationship with me. Or, or on the other hand, I'm afraid that they're going to see a flaw in me that makes them reject me. So, so I'm going to put walls up, and I'm not going to go to growth group, or I'm not going to... That's not okay. Because Jesus sees those flaws in us, but he sees so much more than that. He sees worse than the best of our best-kept secrets. And he sees so much more. He's able to, to penetrate deeper than those things and with his redemption filter, see that thing that will grow and cause everything else to die out. Jesus finds, Jesus sees. Number three, Jesus saves. At the end of verse 48, Jesus prophesies over Nathanael. He says, before Philip called you, I saw you there, and I wish, I wish we could witness kind of what's happening after Jesus says this and before verse 49. Like, what happens in the margin there? Philip is, or Nathaniel is probably processing, okay, this dude just read my mail. What am I going to do with this? I think we'd see him deciding whether or not he's going to double down on his skepticism or if he's going to fully and finally doubt his doubts and place his faith in the Lord Jesus and we see from verse 49 that that's just what he did. Miraculous moment here where he just, he decides on faith. This last week we were at a funeral and one of my uncles who, well, he self-identifies as, as an atheist, he, uh, he came up to me and we were talking and he says, man, I just wish I could have faith in God. I just am not wired that way. Let me underline for you what I tried to underline for him. None of us are wired for faith. Faith is a miracle of God that we have to be rewired for as much as it's a decision based on evidence he gives us. Now, it's, it's a miracle that he generates light, just like he generated light in, in Nathaniel to be able to see some of this evidence. But it's a decision to place evidence on what he puts light on, evidence that's not just external, but internal witness as well from the Holy Spirit. So it's informed faith. It's not blind faith. Now, the opposite is true too. Choosing to not believe in God is a, a, a choice to trust in certain things based on a relative lack of evidence. Faith in God is something that he generates, he gives reasons for, and we decide upon those things. Nathaniel made a decision in this moment, and he just went with it. He goes all in and says, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And let me tell you, there's no ambiguity in what these words mean. What he's saying here, when he says, you're the Son of God, the King of Israel, is exactly what is translated for us in English in what he says. He's saying, you are the fulfillment of all the promises of the Bible. He's saying, you, Jesus, are the one who created the earth. And after we fell from you and rebelled against you, you're the same one who has come to redeem the earth. You're the son of God, the king of Israel. And according to Jesus, in his response, Nathaniel's faith statement is evidence that by his confession, he has just become a believer. He has just become converted to God. In fact, let me show you one more powerful thing 
that happens in the moment of Nathaniel's conversion here that's easy to miss without a little bit of a trained eye. Remember when Nathaniel comes to Jesus all skeptical, kind of he's got his guard up with Jesus, and Jesus says, he just softens him with an affirmation. There's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, verse 47. I think there's a deeper meaning in this prophetic affirmation that Jesus speaks over him that probably wouldn't have been lost on Nathaniel. And I have to take you back to Genesis 32, the night that Jacob, who was another man in this night, who was actually just like Nathaniel, he was wrestling with God and with his thoughts about God and whether or not he was chosen by him or he was alone. Jacob, the patriarch who would be used by God as a seedbed of faith, Jacob was wrestling with God and God came and touched him and changed him and he actually changed his name the night of his conversion. He changed Jacob's name to Israel, which means prevailing. Now, something that's important, does anyone here remember what Jacob means? It means deceiver. This is important. The night of Jacob's conversion, God converts the man of deceit into Israel. And so here you fast forward to Nathanael. Jesus calls this man, you are a son of Israel, a man in whom there is no deceit. And even to drive the Jacob imagery home even further, Jesus adds in verse 51, he says this thing about the angels ascending and descending. And that goes back to just a few chapters before in Genesis 28. One night, Jacob had a dream. And it says that he, in this dream, he saw angels going up and down, ascending and descending on a ladder, like a ladder climb up. He woke up undoubtedly, okay, this is really strange, but he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and he called that place Bethel, Bethel, which means the house of God, or the the official place of God's presence, and then from the rest of Jewish history, that place was used in, in different times and seasons for God's presence. So back to Jesus, He's talking to Nathaniel and he says, you'll see greater things than this, O son of Israel. You'll see greater things, O son, in, in whom there is no deceit, no guile. You'll see what I showed Jacob becoming fulfilled before your eyes. Angels going up and down on the son of man. Now, I don't have enough time to dig into the power of this word son of man, it's actually in John chapter one. This is the 10th title given for Jesus in chapter one alone. It's his favorite self-reference, the son of man. It's a fulfillment of Daniel chapter seven, that the person who brings about the end of time is the son of man, not just a son of man, but the perfect man who is God. Jesus says, all of Jacob's longing is fulfilled in me. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, I am the ladder. I am the bridge between God and man, between heaven and earth. I am the Bethel, Jesus says. No longer is God's presence going to be experienced in a certain place, but it's going to be experienced through a person, and that person is me. Jesus alone saves. Jesus is the new Bethel, the person that we can go to and he brings us into the presence of God and we ascend 
to the very presence of God because of who Jesus is. And Jesus is the only one qualified to be the latter. Jesus alone lived a perfect life as a man and perfectly earned ascension into heaven. But Jesus didn't just ascend. He chose to descend. He chose to die the death that we should have died in our place as our substitute. He died the death of the sinner on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead to fully confirm his power to be the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus finds, Jesus sees, Jesus saves, and finally Jesus sends. Now you'll notice a pattern with Philip's life and how Jesus calls him and then Philip's walking with him. And then this pattern is repeated throughout the rest of the book of John. And it's actually repeated throughout the rest of the Bible, especially in the book of Acts. And that pattern is this. The moment Jesus saves people, he sends people. When Jesus saves, he sends. Before you got all your stuff together, before your mind is right, before you complete seminary or the purple book or even stardom. Now let's get started. But Jesus wants to use you today, now, and to use you to what? To participate with him in finding, in seeing, in his salvation work, in his sending work. It's a powerful cycle that will never stop, like a mustard seed that grows up into something that just takes over the world with the love of God. Jesus wants to use you today. Philip, the moment he's found, is out there finding. And for you, God wants to use you. Our words are to engage, establish, equip, and empower. And from the very moment God engages you, that's how this works. Jesus sends. Or to put it simply, we are to honor God and make disciples. What else? Nothing else. I want to invite you into something specific. This For the Love series, we're going to do something called the For the Love campaign. We're going to do practical things that are redemptively uncomfortable for some of us, where we go out and help people in the community. Our desire is that we would be, in this series, having a special expression of God's power to the campus, the community, and the world. We talked a little bit about the campus last week. Next month, we're going to talk about opportunities we have in the world that we're actually going to spend our time and our prayer and our money getting people from developed nations to come to our world conference next year. This week, we're going to talk about God's work in the community. In our growth groups, we are going to dream together about something practical God's going to use our time and our work and our money to do to find people and show them that they're seen by the one who sees. Your growth group leader in our community groups especially are going to be leading in a discussion and dreaming and decision making about something practical we can do for people that we've been praying for. Pick someone that we're going to just bless. It's an exciting discussion that I don't want you to miss. And I don't want you to miss that when we see this play out in people's lives. 
Our campus groups are going to be going up to North Texas, spending our time and money up there. Our community groups are going to be engaging in this behavior that's abnormal. Being a blessing for the love of God that won me. Now the first step in a lot of this that I invite everyone here to is we're going to pray tonight. Pray that we're going to honor God as a church and this thing of discipleship that he started that gets out to the unseen people would be powerfully manifest through us. It's a one-hour prayer meeting. There is childcare there tonight for uh, ages five and younger, six and younger, something like that. I'm asking you to bring faith to our relationships in church. If it was not your plan to do anything more than just kind of come to church and sit through a long sermon, maybe it's still God's plan. That after we do our, the rest of our service and we have our songs and our communion, that by faith you'll leave here saying, I'm going to seek God more. I want you to join us in prayer. I want you to not be in a hurry here. We have, we have explanations and connections that we can answer questions about growth groups, whether on the campus or in the community. As we gather our kids, would you pray with me?